0: Before we start, I want to thank our sponsor, Quiet Light Brokerage. Quiet Light's team of advisors helps entrepreneurs like you buy and sell online businesses for six, seven, or eight figures. They closed over $75 million of deals last year alone, and they've closed hundreds of millions of dollars since they started in 2007. Want to know how much your business is worth? Visit quietlightbrokerage.com slash exit strategy to find out. The site will teach you how to determine what impacts your valuation and how to optimize your valuation through ad backs and accounting methods. Whether you're aiming for an exit or want to run your business for years to come, Quiet Light can help you. Ready to learn more? Visit quietlightbrokerage.com slash exit strategy to get started. All right, on to today's episode. All right, welcome to the new episode of the Exit Strategy Podcast. We're here with Chris Davis from Loot Crate. Chris, super excited to meet you. You and I have never chatted before, which rarely happens to me in the e-commerce industry. Super excited to get to chat today.
1: Yeah, no, excited to be here and uh, looking forward to it and Super good to connect.
0: So Loot Crate is a subscription box to geeky products for $20 a month or around that price point. Is that a fair way to describe Loot Crate or is that completely wrong?
1: I mean, that's kind of the origins of Loot Crate and one of our products now. But, you know, we've gotten into 25 different subscription lines, a bunch of different price points and offerings. But the original concept was $20, Comic-Con in a box, all the best products across pop culture getting forty to sixty dollars of value for that twenty and in, in this really curated experience. So and that's the origin, but it's evolved quite yeah. a bit.
0: Is this one of those instances where like the origin is still the bread and butter of the business? Like a native, Deodorant is the bread and butter of the business, or is this the place where the origin is like ancient history like Amazon? Like, okay, yeah, we sell books, but we sell everything else too now. No, it's not
1: the largest product line. Gotcha. And really has that holistic anything across gaming, film, entertainment. Yeah. Genre, gotcha. Feel, yeah. And when did the business
0: launch? When did you guys like actually start the business?
1: We launched it in twenty twelve. In twenty twelve, uh, actually launched it at a startup weekend in Los Angeles, and because uh, I'd gone to a bunch for fun, and it was like this is no better place to launch a new company than at a, at a startup weekend. Do so you go on stage to like pitch the business, or like what does a startup weekend look like? It's literally a two day hackathon. I met my co founder there, so we you know had everything teed up, launched it. And business took off kind of from day one there, and we were shipping a product 30 days later.
0: Did you come up with the concept during the hackathon, or did you guys know what you wanted? To do? No, that what was before. Yeah, okay, it came gotcha. in. Yeah, yeah. came in with the concept. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Okay, you yeah. launched in 2012. I've done a, a bunch of research about Loot Crate. I'm a huge fan of the business. By 2016, you're doing a hundred million dollars in revenue. Is that right? A hundred million dollars? We were doing like 170 million in revenue in 2016. 170 yeah. million you're number one on the fastest on the list of fastest growing e-commerce companies by Inc. I read that in 2014 you had 200,000 subscribers. 2016 you've tripled that. you have 600,000 subscribers. So tell me how 100%. the hell you built a business to do 100. 2012 e-commerce is not what it is today. I was in e-commerce in 2012. You were trying to buy Facebook likes, which meant nothing. When you posted on your page on Facebook, there were still a bunch of people who were like actively engaged on that. Today, if you do that, zero people respond. Like, how do you build a business? Uh, We interviewed the Hubble Contacts guys and I asked Jesse, how did you spend your first $10,000? He's like, Facebook, Instagram. Of course, it's Facebook and Instagram. What did you do in 2012? So, yeah, we primarily didn't do any
1: of the kind of traditional paid Facebook until 2014, really. Yeah. Our largest channel was Influencer and really like all the new YouTube celebrity folks coming up. My brother had been early at Maker Studio and had launched a channel doing video game sketch comedy. My co founder Matt had worked and managed a bunch of those guys. So we immediately, you know, even that first weekend we were already pulling in some of these large creators with big followings. And so worked closely there and then scaled up. We were Originally, any paid spend on Facebook for the first two years was on building the, our pages, yeah. buying likes, yeah. make it, and doing yeah. all that. And then Facebook was like, no, 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 <laughs> yeah, no yeah. more of that. Yeah. Facebook and some of those other channels were really pretty small for us until a couple of years ago. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You said you didn't find like you didn't really get investing or you didn't start investing in Facebook until 2014. Mm-hmm. Facebook didn't have like an yeah. ad engine until 2014. So in 2012, you're buying YouTube influence or you're getting YouTube influencers to speak about the product.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, traditional kind of performance affiliate deals. Some of them we integrated actually in is and gave equity to some of the larger ones that we want to be part of the business for a long time. Oh, wow. Okay. But yeah, the product was super compelling and shareable yeah. for them, and so integrate them into the business from day one. When we were distributing product, they were
0: opening it each month and sharing it with all of our subscribers and their fans. When I was running Native, I had a really difficult time getting influencers to do any pay for performance or like affiliate. They were all like, no, 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 no. You need to give us X amount of cash before we do this thing. And we don't care how many sales we get. Like Some people, that that wasn't true for 100% of the cases, but it was true for 90% of the cases. Back in 2013, 2012, 2014, are people still doing pay for
1: performance? Totally. And I think obviously there was at that time too, all the MCNs were scaling up. So there was like, you know, it was a mix of like, there were now these professional ad sales teams coming out of big media companies, yeah. managing these guys trying to charge massive amounts of yeah. money that weren't economical. Yeah. But a lot of, yeah, I think they also charge more for products that weren't on brand. So when you're doing like a big CPG integration... Yeah you're going to pay brand dollars. But if you're a cooler brand they like to work with, uh, we were able to build a network directly that
0: way. Are you still doing a lot of like pay for performance type of deals or is it now generally sort of shifted to we're a brand as well, uh, we have to pay you upfront. We've done both. I mean, we've spent – and I think it comes down
1: to everything from, you know, PewDiePie who's number one down. And so I think we've had flexible approaches. A lot of it comes back to just that CAC math of – we were doing it's up we had five or six hundred active influencers. So we had really great data on view through, click through conversion rates. Yeah. So you could almost if people wanted flat fee payments, you could calculate what the equivalent would have been. And so, yeah, you know, just a disciplined approach there. But yeah, we weren't it changed quite a bit into 2015 2016 and i think the market's even shifting again now with uh, a lot of the mcn's yeah. dialing back and uh, and now the cpm's on youtube coming down in the last couple months
0: how many people does it take on
1: your team to manage 5 or 600 like you know influencers we had one per yeah how big is that team for the right? that team at that time when it was at kind of at peak spend for us which was in you know 2016 2017 was five folks five folks managing 500 people yeah cuz well some of it's high touch some of it's low touch yeah and so, you know, we used basic CRM to communicate and there's a lot of automation and getting product out. And we tried to make the deals simple enough and repeatable enough yeah. that it wasn't particularly high touch. But at the end of the day, these are folks that we want to make sure we had had
0: people available to talk to. Yeah. Did you guys test offers with the influencers? And if so, what were the offers that worked?
1: Yeah. I mean, it was really the, the pretty basic, they should be able to have a discount code for their audience for rewarding them there. And Really unboxing and showing the product was always the winning approach. Doing little pre-roll or mid-roll ads, it's not nearly as effective. Same thing with podcasts, which is, I think, a very similar marketing medium. Like having somebody open, talk about the products, be genuinely excited always worked the best for us. Yeah.
0: It's crazy how much authenticity still gets through with like, you know, paid influencers. It's like somehow you still can't fake it. I don't know why. No, I mean, we all know it.
1: Yeah, we all know it. We know it. I mean, as a marketer, you're like, you don't want it to, you know, as a consumer, you know, as a marketer, sometimes you're optimistic that this less authentic, more scalable approach is going to work, but it never does. Yeah,
0: but you know, when I'm watching like Game of Thrones, I'm like, okay, all of these guys are like, oh my God, there's this epic battle and whoever wins is going to like rule Westeros forever and whoever dies is going to die. I know what's going on. There's no authenticity. And yet I'm in like, you know, so engaged. And when an influencer is like, Hawking a product versus genuinely excited about it. It's so clear. I'm not sure if they're not as good actors or if it's just like, you know, human beings have sort of been like have their own lie detector. And for short things, we can figure it out. And that's, I think the
1: most interesting thing with the influencers, they are the ultimate entrepreneurs. These guys had no startup capital and built an audience of millions. So their currency has always been being authentic and building that fan base. So what we found over time was they were never willing to sacrifice that authentic, genuine relationship with their viewers on behalf of some brand who's sure. gonna come and go. So I think it makes the integrations work really well when they do because their main currency is being trusted by their fan base. Yeah.
0: Are you still working with any of the influencers that you started working with in 2012? Like has anyone lasted eight years? Yeah, some have. Some, I mean, a lot of those folks have shifted yeah. their approach yeah, too, course. and
1: people have moved now. You know, some people are Twitch exclusive. Some people are. It's been really interesting to watch
0: the evolution there. But yeah, we're still working with folks from back in that era. 2014, you have 200,000 subscribers. 2016, 600,000 subscribers. At what point do you fundraise?
1: Yeah, we did a 25k seed check right when we launched with a couple guys out of LA, Nick Ruff, and Dave Waxman, and then didn't raise again until that Series A. Until the Series A in 2016. Yeah, so yeah, four years of bootstrapping. You're
0: profitable at 200,000 subscribers. There's no way you just burn $25,000 over four years. You must be profitable.
1: We were operating essentially at, at just below and at break even. So we were reinvesting
0: yeah. everything. And how many yeah. people are at the team before you raise that Series A? We were at probably 60, 70 folks at that point. Okay. Tell me what's going on in your head. When Native was doing well, I was like, this can't be fucking possible. Like, I can't believe that we didn't have to raise more money in order to build such a big business. And I also felt like everything was held together with duct tape. Cause I was like, I don't know when like water is starting to like water. We're going to start leaking out of this ship. And I really don't know when like a torpedo is going to hit the ship and just blow this whole thing apart. Never happened. But like, I was constantly worried about that. You know, you're doing a hundred million dollars in revenue. You've raised $25,000 at the time. You were not Casper mattresses in that not as like Casper everybody knew about. It was like this DTC darling. Luke Crate wasn't. Why wasn't it? And what's going on in your head? I think we were doing the right
1: thing. We were marketing to our audience, which is a different segment. Yeah. So we were very focused on, on our consumer. We were there. I think for us, as you know, it's a physical distribution business. There are crazy chaos every day. So yeah. we were used to that like that intensity level. Being 100% percent direct consumer though, we did control the whole funnel. So as long as you know we had scaled up different leadership in other areas, so everything was working. We controlled fulfillment. Yeah. At that point, we were working primarily with third-party manufacturers on product. And so the complexity scaled up month to month. And so you just got used to more and more of that craziness. But no, a lot of it was just, like you said, heads down. Yeah. If there's a problem, you solve it. And then, yeah, really just scaling up. Capabilities across all those areas. For me, I felt
0: both terrified and invincible, which is a really weird dichotomy. You feel like nothing can ruin this, but you also feel like everything is going to fucking ruin this. Did you have that feeling, or were you just like, I'm in the weeds, I don't really have time to appreciate? What's going on on a month over a quarter over quarter basis?
1: No, both. I mean that, like you said, that feeling is there. Depending on when things are going really well, and when they're not. Because <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. when you're in that rapid growth mode, there's a lot of things going really well, but behind that, there's all the things that you're trying to keep moving forward. So we had port strikes and product recalls and like all kinds of crazy problems that come up that feel very existential in the moment. Yeah. Um That you just try to have some like perspective on after the fact, but yeah, your cortisol
0: levels yeah. spike ridiculously. For a long time, like when you're growing up and you see something on the news where you're like, there's a port strike, you're just like, whatever, who gives a shit? And now all of a sudden you're like, you dumb port workers, get back to work. I need to ship this product. You're like, can we call it the port? And
1: just get our product. You know, it's like you're like, oh, no, this is, yeah,
0: macro events. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the products that you're making. You're licensing third party IP, right? Like I've seen like Star Wars boxes and like Pokemon boxes and you were licensing IP. Is that correct? So
1: initially, we were working primarily with third-party manufacturers, and then we scaled up uh, our own internal product capabilities later. So we were basically going out and saying, what's the coolest product that no one knows about, finding it, and then working with uh, 200-plus suppliers uh, to create something each month. Each box had four or five items. And really, we said we could buy anything across the entire licensed product landscape. Uh, So we were buying books, uh, apparel, collectibles, you know, early on, I even shipped some DVDs when that was still oh, So So wow. it's like anything that needed to be out there, we would go and find, and then partner with companies to produce.
0: And then you ultimately got to exclusive products. Is that right? At some point, you were like making products that other people had, and then you had exclusive products.
1: Uh, very early, even we were working with third parties to produce exclusive products for us, and which is a big part of the you know the licensed product space. Yeah. You'll do an exclusive variant that shows up if it's, you know, you think about a collectible, something like that. We'd work with other companies, but produce exclusive product with them. So
0: did you have to go to like Lucasfilm to try and get that exclusivity or those licensing fees? Or did you just go to this third-party manufacturer that sort of had those already?
1: That was kind of phase two for us, where we actually started taking direct licenses ourselves. At the beginning, we'd go and find somebody that already had that license and work with them on a product. And then over time, we got to a big enough scale where we started to take more of that in-house directly. Gotcha. Okay. So let's like
0: rewind or fast forward again to 2016. You raise a series A. It's $18 million. It's led by Upfront. Is that right? Yeah. And who's the partner on the deal? Is it Mark Suster is it somebody else at Upfront? Greg Bentinelli. Okay. I read that you also have like Robert Downey Jr. in the round as well, or like his venture arm. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. His venture arm
1: came in and, and often co invest with Upfront and those guys.
0: That's great. And so ultimately, how many people put in the
1: money to get to $18 million? Uh, Upfront was the largest check. I think there was five or six other investors alongside that.
0: Okay, okay, gotcha. And then I read somewhere that you're still a 50, like you were the 51% shareholder or something to that effect after this round of capital. Between you, your co founder, and all these guys, you still held a large chunk of the shares. Is that correct? Yeah, between my co founder,
1: myself, and then like company equity. Yeah, because we, we didn't really, we hadn't raised before. So we, you know, Common still had a large portion of the company.
0: Yeah. Tell me what made you raise? Like you went from. Zero dollars to 160 million dollars in revenue in four years, which is insane. Especially in those four years, when like targeting is what it is. But it's even it's absolutely more insane. The idea that you did it with 25 thousand dollars. What ultimately makes you raise money? We actually kept very
1: disciplined folks on that single Loot product for the first three and a half years, and really refined the model. We did a ton of user testing. The actual like product experience got dramatically better over time. And so we got to a point where we thought it was, you know, we needed to start expanding out into essentially different fan verticals. Yeah. Also wanted to start taking licensing in-house, which comes with a lot of upfront commitments and guarantees and just a lot more you know, upfront investment. And then we were working on a bunch of vertical expansions. So we had, uh, you know, the major league baseball and NBA teed up to launch a sports vertical. And then really we had one software engineer to 200,000 subs and, you know, we were starting to get a lot more complexity in the model. Yeah. We need to build out a lot more of our own custom tech. So just investing in data science team, engineering team, uh, and then a lot more in-house product development folks. So when you have 600,000 subscribers, you have one engineer? No, 600,000 subscribers. We had, at that point, we had five or six okay, engineers, gotcha. And we were having to take on more of the development internally. Yeah. But up through 200,000, we were just leveraging a lot of the existing you know, enterprise software. Okay, And I think it's a good lesson for a lot of DTC folks is like, especially where Shopify is today versus where it was then, you really can get to a pretty massive scale before you need to invest a lot in custom development. Yeah. When we raised, it was to say, "Hey, we think there's in the two hundred and sixty billion dollar licensed consumer product space globally. There's a lot of room to scale and grow. And if we're going to do that, we need to raise you know more capital. Yeah. to invest and then really you know ramp up burn.
0: And you're not on Shopify back then, right? You like Shopify isn't what it is today. You're building out your own custom tech. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. We were using
1: yeah. Recurly and Chargify early on and a bunch of these like basically built for enterprise
0: software companies that we were kind of hacking together. How did you get to $18 million? $170 million a year business can raise way more than that. I can't imagine that it was hard to find investors and I can't imagine that it was hard to raise more money than that. Why did you choose $18 million?
1: Actually, it it was not an easy time to raise. Back if you remember 2015, 2016, there was challenges with China. There was a bunch of large... E-com companies that had had some challenges that had raised big rounds, so it actually was not a particularly easy time to raise. And we raised actually on we did 18 and a half of equity and 15 of debt at the same time. So the total raised at that point was like 30 33 million in a combination of debt and equity. Okay. So we need, we did bring in more capital, but it what actually was not the easiest time for ecom raising just because. I think a lot of, you know, uh, FAB had had some challenges. Yeah, There's like yeah, a bunch sure. of, there had been a big, in 2013, 2014, a, a, a ton of investing into the space. And I think some folks had gotten burned there.
0: That's crazy how, like, quickly people forgot, right? If it was, yeah, people forgot about FAB. 2015 is hard to raise. By 2018, you're back in it. We're like, great, let's mm-hmm. write huge checks to every single direct-to-consumer business, overcapitalize them, and we'll figure, like, you know, we'll hopefully we'll pay for this later or somebody else will pay for totally. this. History repeats. Yeah, exactly. Yep. That's right. <laughs> and, and, like, history, look, And the venture cycles are like yeah, yeah, so, it's, the 1917 it's, Spanish flu that we're repeating with COVID. This is like, oh yeah, I forgot what happened 24 months ago. Like I've got milk in my fridge that's that old, you know? That's crazy. 100%. All right. So you've raised $30 million or around $30 million between equity and debt at that point. And then business gets much tougher. Yes. Yeah, I think. Yeah, tell me what happened. Like, what happened? Like, ultimately, the wheels start falling off. But tell me how things went from 170 million to the wheels starting to fall, to
1: fall off. We were raising to launch and expand both the team internally and then the product offerings and a lot of our internal capabilities all at the same time. And I think big lesson was just like execution risk at scale becomes much more real. And we had a lot of concurrent bets out that were straining the business. So. Yeah, I think when we raised, we definitely ramped up burn, ramped up, uh, marketing spend, ramped up all that. And I think we went from just a couple product lines to a dozen different subscription lines very quickly. And so had challenges around inventory and and forecasting. So we were, you know, assuming like our core business could continue to grow exponentially at the same time as we're marketing other product lines. That didn't work out as well. Um, we then built out like these brand teams that were trying to distribute purchasing and P&L responsibilities to folks that hadn't really had to do it at scale before. So we had some margin compression. Like, yeah. there was all these little things that kind of chip away. And then on top of that, you know, I think the actual product offering itself and all that was was doing very well. We basically were scaling OpEx and team size more quickly than the business had been growing. And so, you know, burned through cash too quickly. And so then we kind of had to go into a pivot mode where we were, you know, then, less of a growth orientation and more of a, you know, efficiency profitability orientation. Plus we had a large outstanding debt facility, sure. which creates a whole other set of,
0: of complexity. First with just like the shift from going from no burn to starting to burn money. From a mental perspective, is that difficult to do? Like a native, you know, we didn't burn money. And then all of a sudden when we had people, you know, I was constantly worried about running out of money. We'd raised $500,000. We were sort of operating like you guys were. I was like, if there's a big, if something goes wrong or if we make a big mistake or if I make a big mistake myself, I'm not sure the business can afford it. And like once we had p gs backing, it was hard for me to mentally shift it to the phase where I was like, you know what, we can afford to make a big mistake now. And I think as a result of not being able to take advantage of that balance sheet, I made a mistake by not taking advantage of it. Was it difficult for you to make that shift from being like mm. cash flow neutral to burning money mentally? Or were you just like, hey, I know how this works. And I know we raised this money, and we're going to put it to use.
1: There's like the basic operating metrics. So you're like your CAC to LTV ratios and stuff. So you're tracking a lot of those operating metrics closely. So you can feel good about the investments you're making, even when the burn's there. I think just the complete reporting and complexity of, of, of that large an org, we had 300 full-time employees and another 250 temp warehouse folks at that point. So just, there's a lot of scale and a lot of burn. Wow.
0: You're doing your own fulfillment.
1: Yeah, exactly. We had a hundred thousand square feet in LA. Uh, where we're doing fulfillment and it's also a bigger ship to turn. So I think there was just a number of, it was difficult to be in multiple modes at once. I think we'll get into it more kind of as we talk to the challenges, but like growth, lean efficiency, cost cutting. Yeah. It's hard to be in both mindsets at the same time. Yeah. And I think as a leader, as you scale, the org gets bigger, you're in more markets, you're in more channels, you have more product lines. Um, you're really handing off responsibility in some of those areas and you're choosing where you're focusing. Yeah. yeah there's just a lot more to manage.
0: Yeah. You're like creating a, a bunch of new boxes and you must be scaling marketing spend at the same time in order to try and grow that, like, you know, continue that exponential growth. Where are you spending marketing dollars in 2016 to 2018 when you're sh- sort of trying to grow? Is it, have you shifted from YouTube to Facebook or is it still primarily YouTube?
1: Yeah. So we, I mean, we had, um, big belief in a lot of these organic channels. So one, and really driven by my co-founder, Matt, we had a big social team and we had social channels for a lot of our different subscription lines. Um, we had 30 40,000 pieces of organic content created by our community and really had a whole engine around working with the community and reinforcing that. We then had big investment on the influencer side still. Uh, we were spending a large amount of money by then on paid Facebook, yeah. you know, north of a million a month. And then we were doing direct response television. We had a big investment podcast. We've done probably 70 different conventions, which is a unique wow. part of our industry. Yeah. For the first couple of years we actually had a modified school bus that we would drive around and be our booth in these conventions. So that was you know the in-person yeah. piece of it was big. And then tons of co-marketing. So we were working, you know, we had Marvel in a crate. We would be working with Marvel social team to post Any of our manufacturers and suppliers that were in the box that month, we'd be co-marketing with. We had a whole co-marketing and partnership set of channels as well that we looked at. But really kind of thinking about what are the proprietary marketing opportunities we can own that are we're not going to be trying to bid against everybody on Facebook or Google. And then having those really be kind of scalable, predictable channels alongside those. In
0: 2017, do you grow beyond your 2016 numbers or is there a contraction? No, that's what we started to pull back uh, beginning of 2017. At that point, yeah. The peak is 2016, 2017 ish, and you're licensing IP from Marvel and sort of working on exclusive products. And you're like sort of working with Marvel and not the manufacturer for that licensing. Does that licensing make up a significant part of your cost of goods sold? It varies a bit, but yeah, it ends up being, you know, the average licensing rates are, you
1: know, 10 to 15 percent on cost of goods. So it ends up being, yeah, it's material to margin.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think everyone's always curious when like a plushie doll comes out. So I'm always like, how much of this money goes to Luke George Lucas and Lucasfilm, and how much of it goes to Harry Potter and WB uh, versus like the actual person who manufactured it or sold it. So 10 to 15% seems to make a lot of sense.
1: 10 to 15% for across, yeah. If you're Star Wars, you get you know up to like 18%, 20% gotcha, sometimes, gotcha. but it's all right in that range.
0: Yeah, There a one big thing that you point to and you're like, this is the mistake we made that sort of made us pull back on the business. It's sort of like a bunch of little nicks as you're expanding. You're expanding channels. You're expanding the type of boxes that you offer. Um, you're distributing P&L responsibility from yourself to other managers. And all of that chips away a little bit to ultimately like cost you the growth trajectory that you sort of want to be on.
1: Totally. I mean, the other big thing is once you have capital partners in the business, then there's a lot of alignment and Getting everyone on the same page to get things done. Um, and especially with debt, you know, if you're missing your covenants, you're default on your loan. Yeah. Lenders are, you know, it's much more of a scaled D2C company problem, yeah. but debt has very different dynamics than equity. So we were dealing with a lot of complexity on that side of the business. Um, that, you know, it was definitely impacting focus on, the other side of the business. we really just decided we got to cut back costs to get to a sustainable level.
0: Was your CAC going up a lot at this time? Was this more of an OPEX problem or was this a we're spending a lot of money on marketing problem or both? It wasn't.
1: CAC had been fairly stable. I think there's definitely like increasing costs in some of the like the bigger channels like Facebook, things like that, that everyone was seeing around that time is is more dollars moving there. It's more of a
0: kind of a structural business issue. Gotcha. Tell me a little bit about the dynamics with debt. I understand that there are like, you know, equity is very different than debt. Equity sort of along the ride and gets paid when you get paid. A debt you've got not only to pay them on a monthly basis, but also covenants where they're like, you have to hit certain metrics, otherwise you're in default of our obligations. Was the debt tough to deal with? Were they constantly calling you and being like, hey, you're not meeting your obligations? Like you said, you had raised $15 million in debt. Did they think that there were $15 million in assets if they foreclosed upon the business or if they took possession of the business that they would get their money back?
1: It doesn't get to that level really quickly. Folks are trying to work through mm-hmm. just like what's the plan, right? So, yeah. with that lender, we worked through it for quite a while and ended up refinancing them in 2018. A lot of it is just, you know, that trying to align, you know, we, we were looking at bringing in new capital yeah. at the same time as we were cutting costs to try to achieve profitability. So, we're out trying to raise equity with top line not growing the way it had yeah. been. The more complexity in the capital structure, The more misalignment there could be, just in like near term and medium term objectives, and so you know there's a learning curve there to figure out you know how to manage those aspects. And
0: is this taking up a lot of your headspace? Like it sounds like it did, because you have to like not only do you have to manage the equity guys, you got to manage the debt guys. You want to refinance, you want to fundraise again. Um, It sounds like the debt guys. It just sounds like it would take up a lot of your mental energy. I'm focusing on this one day, a quarter sort of type of thing, or is this uh, actually this is bothering me every... There's a little thing in the back of my head that I'm always thinking about, and it's not going away, slash I'm thinking about it full-time once a week. No, it's, yes, yeah, it's, it, you
1: know, for probably two years, it's about 75% of my time, and really letting the kind of day-to-day operations of the business, managing all that, everything surrounding that... All of the complexity generated by 75% you know, figuring insane out insane amount you know, of time. Insane. No, for sure. And that's why I think it is an insane amount of time, but it is at that point, you know, the, the reality, the reality and the most important thing that I can do. We yeah. had a great team of operators in place too, but yeah, it was, you know, I think the lesson to a lot of folks is, and I think everyone's probably seeing it now with COVID and just strains on businesses is that like margin of safety and risk management which a lot of those of us that like dive head first into these businesses are pro risk you know the risk management side is something i've become a lot more as of advising folks and helping people out it's like just give yourself a lot of margin for error because if you don't you end up you know having to spend an enormous amount of time on things that aren't driving customer value aren't really like the core drivers of growth of the business in the long and medium term
0: yeah, absolutely. Like when Native first raised capital, we raised $50,000 within like the first three or four months of launching the business. And I talked to my brother about it. He actually ran a mobile gaming company that licensed a lot of IP. So they created like a Harry Potter game, a Marvel game, a Star Wars game, Family Guy game. And so I was like, you know, we've raised this $50,000. He's like, I would never write you that check. And I was like, why wouldn't you write that check? He's like, Fifty thousand dollars, you get one swing at the bat, and if you like miss that swing, you're out of money and your business is over. Nobody wants to put in fifty thousand dollars, and you only have fifty thousand dollars in your bank account. You're going to make a mistake, and that fifty thousand is gone quickly. If you've got three hundred thousand dollars, you can like learn from that mistake and swing again, and maybe one more time before you're sort of out of money. And
1: like totally, and you probably dealt with this quite a bit, but I I see it all the time. Is you know, especially when you have inventory too, and you're launching something new. A lot of people get overly optimistic about like the first run. And you're like, why'd you just put 40 of your 50k into inventory you haven't sold yet? You know, I think if you're like that cash might be the last cash I ever get till I prove something out, you would think very differently about where you put the money.
0: Yeah, that is a great point. For us, we were like just in time inventory. So like, if you bought your deodorant on a Thursday, we would actually make it, Probably the next day on Friday and ship it to you Monday or Tuesday. The number one need we had for a really long time was customer service because people would be like, "I ordered a week ago, you haven't even shipped my package. What the fuck is wrong with you?" Which is completely fair on their part. For us, we were just like, "This is the only way we can afford to grow the business because if we start like putting 40k of that 50k into inventory, you know that 10k is barely going to last like three days." That like you know we're running ads, some random expense comes up, uh, there's this other thing that we didn't realize that we had to pay for, and now we're broke.
1: No, no, I was gonna say, yeah, as a D2C company, not having inventory become something that kind of controls your decision making lets you be a better, you know, D2C business where you can really be customer centric, work on the product, do all this. If you have three times the amount you sell in a month sitting in what you start having to discount it, ship it out, sell it in ways you don't want to. So I think uh Really tight inventory management lets you stay customer-centric in a really healthy way.
0: Definitely. To be honest, as soon as we expanded into brick-and-mortar stores, it was a revolutionary change in the amount of inventory we had to hold. We went from holding six to seven figures to all of a sudden eight figures of inventory. The first PO from a company might be $3 million. And so you better have $3 million of inventory sitting in your warehouse ready to ship to them. I mean, that's a great problem to have. Don't get me wrong when you get into every Walmart, but like at a much smaller scale, you're just like, how am I supposed to have this much inventory? That just doesn't seem possible. And I think that side of the business too, right? Yeah. For
1: Walmart, we did a big retail rollout. All the forecasting and demand planning is even, is just so different and so far behind what we can do. It's complete garbage. It surprised me at first. It's
0: complete garbage.
1: Yeah. Just like there's too many ways to get caught with your pants down. Yeah, yeah, when,
0: yeah. W- at first like we were sort of relying on the retailer to give us forecasts, like how much they needed and like that never happened. Like that never worked out well. And so we just started building our own forecasts. Like, you know, a retailer would be like we think you're going to go th- we're going to need this and we're like we don't believe that you know what is going on in your own store. We've got this, don't worry about it. Yeah. Okay. So what did you do with extra inventory? It sounds like you know, you were creating these boxes back in 20 20- in like 2016, 2017. You know, at least once you were overly optimistic. When you're DTC only, mm-hmm. how do you discount it?
1: And so the thing that every product in every month, every box was essentially exclusive, right? So we weren't able to resell that. So we spun up a much bigger e com business for customers. And so we, you know, wait 90, 120 days and give customers access to products, things like that. But in general, like the better experience is just for the product to be gone when it's gone and to be exclusive. And so, you know, we found ways to work through it, but. Yeah, you got to be creative. Yeah. You
0: know, in 2016, 2017, when you're burning money, what is like the peak burn? And then what happens at the end? It's it's like, it sounds like the creditors at some point are like, look, we need to recap this.
1: Yeah, no, I think we, everybody kind of realized we needed to get the business where it needed to get and that it was going to be a more challenging, you know, raising like a series B, things like that were going to be challenging given kind of the changes we had to make to the business to get to profitability. And so, you know, we cut, you know, if you think about from, Peak, we we're kind of at six million a month of monthly OPEX. By the time we ended up having to file in 2019, we had cut down to a million five. So we did massive wow. cost restructuring and brought in some really, you know, great restructuring advisors and stuff like that to help really think about, you know, hard decisions that I think is going to be really relevant for folks now. And something I learned through this was like, you can do a lot more than you think you can and giving yourself that flexibility. If we had done that earlier, again, we would have had a lot more flexibility. So went through a, a very
0: long process of just kind of rationalizing the cost structure. Gotcha. Okay. So you thought if you should have cut OPEX earlier is basically, like if you had to redo it, you'd be like, in 2016, you'd be like, let me start cutting OPEX significantly right away. You know, when you're in a growth mindset yeah. as a company, that's
1: important. But when you're, it's hard to be in a growth mindset and in a cost rationalization mindset at the same time. Yeah. And so we were trying to do that dance for a long time. Yeah. Um, where we were, where I think a healthy dose of pain up front um get you back so you can get back to that growth mindset yeah. and keep everybody aligned. Because I think it's difficult to be in two different modes as an organization at once. And you always want to be growth oriented, I think, as a company, but sometimes you just gotta
0: make bigger, harder choices faster. Sure. Tell me some of the like OpEx things that you were able to cut to go from six million in OpEx to one point five. I mean four and a half million dollars in opex is a lot. I'm sure there's like a lot of things. I'm sure some is personnel. I'm sure some is like your office space, or maybe you don't need a hundred thousand square foot shipping facility. Some is maybe reducing the number of boxes you have. What are some of the things that you focus on when you're cutting opex?
1: Yeah, so you know we looked at areas where we could cut areas of ownership. So we moved to a three PL in 2019. We. Uh, built out a much bigger team in the Philippines on the customer support side because yeah. we were getting, you know, forty fifty thousand 50,000 tickets a month. And so we kept our core team here in the U.S. and then had a team there to to augment. Going back and just talking to all of our enterprise software vendors yeah. and really squeezing those prices down because yeah. those can inflate quickly. And yeah. you realize you have, you know, 150 users of something that actually only 20 people are using. Kind of across the board, we had a great uh, head of finance lead all that and just like down to the line item, everything was an option and we push and cut and you kind of go through the whole business and you look for opportunities like that.
0: And how long does it take to go from six to 1.5? Is that like a one year process? Or is that a six? That was two years. two years. That was like two, two and a half okay, years gotcha. to get there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then ultimately yeah. you file for like reorganization through bankruptcy. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah. that happens in 2019. So that happened last year. Exactly. Yep. In August of uh, last year. Look, honestly, I think there are going to be a lot of companies that are facing that this year as a result of COVID, as a result of DTC financing drying up, as a result of more people focusing on profitability. Tell me what that process, one, in part entails, like how hard is it to go through that? And two, what happens at the other side? Like from my perspective, what I would imagine is the equity shareholders are wiped out. The debt holders now become the equity holders. They've got to put in more cash to recapitalize the business. I think that's what happens. But tell me what happened with you guys and sort of how you went through that process. Totally. So I think
1: your high-level overview is pretty accurate. There's Chapter 11, Chapter 7. We went through a Chapter 11 process, which is where you're restructuring and really trying to figure out the best way to... You know, you have creditors, like trade creditors. Um, you have your actual senior lenders and subordinate lenders, all that stuff. So you're really trying to go through a process that maximizes the value to creditors when you're going through that. And so for us, we were just at the point where we had in 2018, spent more money on kind of legal and professional fees than we had on sales and marketing. And you just get to a point where you can't grow and muscle your way through it. And so, you know, a chapter 11 restructuring is the best approach there. And so with that, went through that in August. And as part of that, went through essentially an auction for the business at that point where the largest creditor, you know, bid, acquired the business through that process. It was fairly quick in October is when the acquisition happened. Were there other bidders at the table? a lot of other folks looked at it but yeah the way the the credit bidding and all that stuff works um it's primarily the large creditors that have the best shot yeah. at the deals yeah. but the actual process itself like you know the Delaware court it was actually they're supportive of employees and of keeping the business up and running their goal is really to like you know try to facilitate a fair process and keep the business operating so it was my expectations of the process to kind of how it's all played out it's been really smooth and the business is growing again and it's obviously disruptive, but it definitely is set up in a way that keeps things from falling apart while you're going through the restructuring itself.
0: Okay, I want to ask more questions about the restructuring, but before I get there, do you still spend seventy-five percent of your time focusing on like your cap table and your lenders, or is it now like you're spending more of your time in the business? No, we're, that was
1: done when essentially as the business is coming out of that acquisition process in October. So a lot of it's just been getting, you know, rebuilding customer trust, yeah. getting products out. Um, the last year as we were really getting constrained financially, started to have some delays. We, the whole time through the whole process, we had made sure that there wasn't a big impact on the customer experience. But that last like six months where we're straining to get product out, there were delays, things like that, that we have been focused really on since then, turning the customer experience piece, which gets lost in all sure. of the, the company building sure. running pieces has always been the goal. So it seems really been focused there. Gotcha.
0: Like during bankruptcy, basically it was just hard to meet not only the financial obligations of their debt holders, but also just like customer expectations as you're running the business of getting the product out on time. And so you're trying to sort of turn that ship around and say, Hey, consumers, we're out of this now. We're going to ship our stuff on time. We're back.
1: Yeah, that's That's really the, even more so the pre-bankruptcy piece. Once you're in bankruptcy and you have the dip financing, yeah. then you can operate much more normal course. Your vendors have protection, everything else. So that was really when we filed in August is when we, turn kind of all the operating teams focus on, let's get all these products that are late in and out and try to get back to some kind of normal operating case. Just so people understand
0: dip financing is like debtor in possession financing, which means that uh, like a lender is going to fund you to continue running your business through bankruptcy. And as that happens, they have the first lean position because they're basically like, this is post bankruptcy and we're giving you money in order to continue your 100%. business. So how much debtor in possession financing do you get to
1: continue running a business? I think publicly talked about it. It was a $10 million facility that came in when we were doing that. And so that came in and allowed us to do you know, handle a ton of this stuff, that, like kind of the backlog of things we needed to handle.
0: I want to talk about the business as well, sort of post-bankruptcy and what, what you're seeing in 2020. But what does the cap table look like post-bankruptcy? So you had Upfront and Robert Downey Jr. and $15 million in debt. I imagine Upfront and Robert Downey are now sort of wiped off the cap table. And the guy who is your largest lender and sort of put in more money in the debtor and possession financing is like the largest equity holder on the cap table?
1: Yeah, the group that did the acquisition, it's basically a reset of the entity and all that, right? So that group, there's essentially, there's the old company and the new company, and then that whole new company, everything transitions there.
0: And then how do you remain incentivized? You're the CEO of that old company and the CEO of the new company, but like, do they negotiate with you to give you an equity stake and incentives as well? It happened, I mean, in a lot of these cases,
1: they want some continuity yeah. and leadership. And most of the folks at the company today are folks that were at the company prior to the bankruptcy. Yeah. Hiring the team back now. You know, my goal has really been to make the transition as effective as possible yeah. and work with the team on that. I care a lot about the brand. and want it to survive and be strong. And so I think that's really been the focus is can we get. Let everybody get back to like a normal operating environment, which is all I I think most of the team is really, you know, we have a big chunk of the company is in design and product development. And people want to see just have like a positive story tied to the products we're putting out. Yeah.
0: Well, one, I certainly think like you've been working on the business for eight years. I can imagine there's an incredible amount of like your own personal sweat, blood and tears built into it. And I think a lot of times people get lost on that. Like I don't even work at Native today. And I still think about it on a daily basis. I'm like, this is what I, this is how I did it. Like whenever it, people like tweet about it or tweet at me and they're like, I'm trying it. I'm like, okay, if you don't have a good experience, let me know. I'm like, actually, I have no financial interest in this. And if you tell me you hate it, there's not anything I can do about it either. Yep. There's a lot of like um, personal, like loyalty to the brand that you've sort of built, especially if you've been doing it for eight years.
1: Totally. And I, and I think the customers that are still with us from there, I mean, yeah. there's just a lot of, you want to see it do well and you want to see it be something that people love. Yeah.
0: And so what is working for the brand today? Like you've cut down on OPEX significantly. You've probably retooled marketing where you're like, hey, or, I mean, some of the influencers that you were using eight years ago, you're still using. But that Facebook ad spend isn't a million dollars a month any longer. What is working today in order to grow the brand again?
1: So, I mean, a lot of the same traditional D C channels are still working well. I think, you know, the dynamics shift depending on what's going on. You know, I think we've seen on Facebook, for example, the last 60 days costs come down. Yeah. But in general, it's manageable, right? I think all of the same best practices for us. It's kind of like for our product, it's not something that is a consumable that you need. It's something that you want. And so having trusted brands and partners tell you that this is something that you should have, yeah. which is through influencer, uh, things like that, is still a great channel that works. And I think a lot of it is just figuring out the unit economics. But we're seeing all the same channels uh, that work before work well. We're not really on some of our like higher cost channels like uh, remnant television, things like that. We're not doing anything there, but we're looking at our most efficient channels and our best channels, Facebook included and leaning into those and being disciplined. And, you know, I think again, the actual underlying market dynamics that made this work well, which is, you know, there's a million different Marvel tees yeah. on Amazon.com yeah. and our demo is not going into Target to buy a Marvel t-shirt yeah. that like curated collectible consumer product experience hasn't really shifted throughout the eight years uh, we've been running the business. And so, you know, once it was kind of liberated from a lot of the uh, corporate issues, yeah, it's there. And I think we're looking at you know new experiments. We have a thing called Loot Launcher we're doing, which is like a crowdfunding approach. So we can do a larger number of partnerships, try more things out, be more experimental. And so we're using that crowdfunding model. Is that like sort of
0: almost not Groupon because it's not discounted, but is that like if we sell 7,000 of these, we'll go make all this stuff? Exactly. Captain. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, we're doing more of those. And I think the pre-order model works
1: really well. And so I think there's still a ton of demand in the category. And I think direct to consumer is such a great way. It's where we're all consuming sure. the content, um, building out kind of new economic models around those opportunities. There's a ton we can do there still.
0: It sounds like the mindset has shifted from like to doing a better job understanding demand over the last like two years or maybe three years where you're like, we're really optimistic about this new box. Let's launch this new box. Oh, shit, didn't go as well as we wanted. We have all this excess inventory to let's pre-sell this box. Let's make sure at least 7,000 people want it before we make it. Let's make a max of 10,000 so we don't have a ton of excess inventory. Is that accurate or is that not accurate? 100%.
1: Churn curves are all fairly predictable But they're all different by product lines. Also, when you're getting into 25, 30 different subscription lines, even with models that work well, with the buying teams, the demand planning and things moving, it's just a lot. Asking yourself to execute on that dance perfectly every month is challenging. So building in some flexibility and some predictability has been super helpful.
0: You know, that's so mind blowing uh, because it's almost the exact opposite of what you'd expect. You went from Having no discipline, basically, early on, or not no discipline, of course, but basically saying, look, we're operating on a gut perspective, and we think that'll work, and there's money here. You scale the business, and you think, okay, now I actually trust my gut more. I've been in this for four or five years. We're at a $100 million run rate. We we have hundreds of thousands of subscribers. We've been around. We've only raised $25,000. To actually, you have to trust your gut even less when you get that big because the decisions you make are so monumental. The ship is so large that when you're making those decisions, they can be not mortal blows, but significant blows to the business.
1: Yeah. And I think we have a lot more data today than we did as we were scaling. So to not use that data would be foolish. Yeah. And our growth model was, you know, Paul Graham had put out that essay on growth and I had a good friend in Y Combinator at the time. And so, you know, our whole growth model was we started at 20 percent a month and that really essentially worked for three and a half years. And so we had some kind of a North Star growth metric that then we all could focus on around a single product. When you have products in different stages of their life cycle, totally different offerings, price points, we saw, you know, just a very different approach to Managing those different stages of the product lifecycle, yeah, is ne- was needed.
0: That makes a ton of sense. It blows my mind that you trust your gut less when, or look, like, I think it's accurate because I think, like at native, I should have done more of that. Like I should have trusted my gut less when we reach scale. Instead, I was just like, I can make no mistake. I'm obviously invincible. I know how to do everything. Of course, I do. I've generated all this revenue and EBITDA, and in reality, I should have been like well, if I make a decision and it goes wrong, now we've ordered an extra 250,000 products. It cost us $500,000. It's a much larger mistake today than it was three years ago. When you guys expanded
1: outside of deodorant, like where where are areas where your gut was just totally wrong?
0: Uh, Everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) I don't trust my gut any longer, actually. I mean, the reality is that like, once we expanded outside of deodorant, we were a part of P&G, and so there were a lot of like different interests playing alongside of where we could expand and where we wouldn't expand. Like, you know, we have to sit within a P&G division, and that P&G division really owns the P&L. And so as a result, our li- there's more limitations. I was like, okay, great, we're now part of P&G. We can make whatever we want. P&G makes paper towels. Mm-hmm. We can make native paper towels, and that real very much was not the case. We had more independence in terms of making those decisions pre P&G than we did post P&G. Yep. Your gut was managed well by the. Yeah, uh, yeah. My gut was, uh, by the, yeah, my gut was. You know, my gut was constrained. It. But, it, but the yeah. reality is, that even yeah. then, like I had a gut feelings about a lot of other things, and even inventory on seasonal sense, thanks to that effect. And when I made wrong decisions, they were a lot more consequential. You know, you try to maximize revenues. You're almost like, I'd rather have too much of this product instead of too little. Until your business is large enough, where you're like, Ah, I see how many things are on my balance. Like all of this excess inventory that I ordered too much of is getting to be a huge asset on my balance sheet. And it's not a good asset. It's not going anywhere. Moving forward, I shifted my mindset to being like, I'd rather sell out of this scent rather than have too much of this scent. Give up the revenue.
1: As we brought in a bunch of CPG finance execs, that was, the, I think, the number one thing Like scaling up D2C brands can do is expense your excess inventory as cost of goods in month. Because I think I've seen a lot of folks that if the inventory you see on your balance sheet, your P&L looks great. But the reality is that's excess inventory and you start to realize maybe ten percent of gross margin should just be written down inventory costs. Yeah. And so there's a convince yourself that the model's working as well as it is that I think can help companies do do just a better more discipline around
0: forecasting, demand planning and inventory. Yeah, great advice. I guess I have two more questions. One is, what do you wish you had done differently? Do you wish you had never taken a debt? Do you wish you were more focused on OpEx early on? Do you wish you hadn't expanded into as many boxes? Or do you say, hey, you know what? Like, learned a ton, and we did what was right. I think you learn a lot,
1: right? And so I think during the learnings, you have to make sure that's a positive piece of it because – The pain and agony is gonna come in those moments and you gotta find some healthy way to reframe it. I think there's a ton of things I would've done differently. We had gotten so used to hyper growth that the risk taking and the kind of confidence to solve hard problems uh, on the fly, we just didn't need to think that way. So, and I think I've become a much better communicator with boards, lenders, equity, that like whole new, really important structure that sits on top of the business that really, if you're gonna, it really needs to be managed the right way. Um, a lot of great mentors and through a lot of experiences, I think could have done better there. And I think, like I said, it just goes back to, I think, risk management and making hard decisions earlier, faster and bigger than you'd like to. Yeah. And we had, a you know, this CEO's done like 20 turnarounds come into the company and advise. And we were talking about cuts. It's like, have you ever cut too deep when you're doing a cut? And he's like, I always cut too deep and I never regret it. And I I think which was like, I was like, wow, I I didn't quite internalize at the time. And I think part of the point is because you can always build back up, but then you eliminate existential risk. I think there's a lot of lessons there that a lot of companies are going to go through during this period of time, which is the world has changed. Know that and make big, decisive action more so than you think you need to right now, because it gives you the flexibility when there's going to be a lot of incumbents that are, super distracted and debt-laden right now that the, a lot of these upstart yeah. DC brands can capitalize on, but you need to be in a position to capitalize. So, you know, make hard, big decisions fast.
0: And so do you think he's
1: right? Like, did you cut too deep and you don't regret it? Was he right? I think in the phase, which was much earlier in our life cycle, it was the right advice. I think there's obviously a point. You need to, like, customer experience in all these companies is number one. This has to be yeah. in a way that is, maximizes customer experience. So you can't, like... If you have 20,000 customer support tickets, you need enough folks to respond to those tickets. If you're delivering a product, you're yes. competing with everybody else. It's got to be the best product. Like if you had to start making trade offs, if product quality is yeah. ever affected, that's, that's not, not really a business anymore. Yeah. So I think outside of the like, yeah. but really know what those core areas are. And then everything else has to be fair game.
0: Yeah. That is fantastic advice. Mm. First, this is my favorite interview that I've done ever in my entire life. You grew this brand, like, uh, to $170 million dollars. in like uh, money, uh, $25,000 in capital invested, which is literally nothing compared to the, you know, dollar shave clubs of the world and Harry's of the world and all birds and outdoor voices Two, you went through like genuine I feel like a lot of people and myself included. I had a hard day of work, but I never, like my hard day of work was a good day for you. I never went through a recession. And like in many ways, I was a real coward about the business. You said, I'm gonna raise money, I'm gonna go to the mattresses. This is a $260 billion business and I'm gonna fucking take advantage of it. Me, I was a real bitch and I was just like, we're gonna hire very slowly because I think I'm gonna run out of money every day. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing over here. Everything is going wrong and there's gonna be a torpedo that hits the side of this boat at any given time. And so for us, we didn't face those problems. I knew that we wouldn't face those problems because I was being a real bitch instead of having a lot of courage. To there's no, there's, that's why I did. said.
1: There's nothing wrong with that. I think everyone's got to realize. Yeah, there's nothing the, you wrong know, there. yeah, But I guess you, yeah. you got
0: through that. Like yeah. very few people go through those hard days, come out the other end, and they're like, we're going to build another sustainable business that requires an incredible amount of tenacity and courage and be like, you know, it's not easy to go to a bunch of employees or to go to your fulfillment center and be like, look, we're not going to keep this fulfillment center anymore. We're going to outsource this. We're going to outsource some of our customer service. We have a core team here, but we're going to. Outsource the like it's not easy to get up day after day and sort of make those decisions and rationalize your OpEx for two years. Come through it and be like, now we're going to start building again. Like that requires more tenacity than I've ever seen. That's like a fucking General Electric type of restructuring. It's really spectacular. More in awe of the business as a result of that today than I would have been in 2017 or 2016, and I would have been in awe back then.
1: No, I really appreciate that. And I think the thing for me has been. The benefit, too, of scaling was we got to bring in a lot of seasoned folks. So when I was having a hard time making hard decisions, folks that have seen this a few times were like, these decisions aren't, don't, you're overthinking these things. Like, we have to do what we have to do. And so I think the great leadership team, especially as companies get to scale, folks need to start removing themselves from decision-making because, you know, we're so emotionally tied to the brands and the products. It's hard to make hard trade offs when it's your baby. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think getting better at finding great advisors, making yourself Less the ultimate decision maker and having people that know certain parts of the business better than you help you make the really yeah. hard choices has yeah. been huge for me in terms of growing as a leader. How did you
0: find those advisors?
1: Asking people I trust. You know, I think in any of these areas, you know, there's a whole, on the restructuring and debt side, there's a, a whole separate universe that most of us never interact with that does this. And um, on the growth and marketing side, when we were scaling up and I was trying to figure out who are the best DSC marketers, you just, hitting everybody up and, and learning yeah. as much as you can. Yeah. So I think it's the same kind of general principles. They're out there and they're ready to help. Yeah.
0: Okay. Two final questions. One, what is your favorite video game? Assuming you play video games and two, what is your favorite box been in the last eight years? of VR? Okay. I think this is the moment for VR to really take off.
1: So there's this game called pistol whip on Oculus. That's amazing. That's so fun. You like literally your arms are dead within 10 minutes. Cause you're just literally running around like in this, it's an amazing First person. Are you like pistol You're a pistol whipping, pistol whipping shooting, first person shooter. Like if you don't have a VR, this is the time. Yeah.
0: Oh, I didn't have a VR, VR. headset. Yeah, you spent a lot of time on Oculus. VR
1: headsets, Yeah. Oculus is the one.
0: Oh, uh, how long have you had an Oculus?
1: Uh, like a year. Okay. Yeah.
0: Well, I'm still playing.
1: We like had one at Xbox. the office. We like, we've had them for yeah, a long time. Yeah. We had an interaction for but yeah, we've had them for a while, but yeah, no, like it will change. There's Beat Saber. There's a, some amazing games that like more casual gamers okay. can get really into. So it's, yeah. but yeah. Pistol Whip is amazing and, it's a good one to play. Great, I'm gonna go buy an office okay. and pistol yeah. whip. It's sold out, obviously, because everybody had the same.
0: But uh, yeah, get on the oh, waiting no. list. But yeah, we'll <laughs> hey, be back soon. Um, and then, what was your second question? What has been your favorite box that Loot Crate has ever sent out over the last eight years?
1: We have theme names for everyone, so they're like curated. But it had a uh, replica, yeah. ho- like a one fifth scale replica hoverboard, like a Doc Brown when he's holding the two uh, jump starters together, yeah. as like a collectible figure. It had a back to the future, be excellent to each other shirt, which is like the best message of all time. And it was just like, yeah, I had all of my favorite favorite gear there. So that was in the end of 2015. So a ways okay. back. Oh, that's, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah.
0: Chris, this is amazing. Thanks so much for sharing your journey. I feel like you've got a lot more experience than most people in direct to consumer. You've seen a lot more things when it comes to direct to consumer. And like very few people would be as honest and upfront and as open as you've been. So I really appreciate that as a founder. And I really like realize the amount of tenacity and courage you've had to go through this and build a successful business on the other end of all this is superhuman and like heroic. If I worked at your company, I would think of you as the superhero that would go in a box. You're one of those people in the direct consumer industry. And thanks so much for being here. Really appreciate it.
1: No, this was great. Really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, I think this is an awesome platform, man. So uh, I'm loving all the, uh, the podcasts so far and excited to be on.
0: Awesome. awesome. Yeah. Great. Thanks, thanks so much. Hey, guys. That's a wrap for this episode of the Exit Strategy Podcast. We'll be back next Thursday with another new episode. And if you like this podcast, visit thehustle.co to subscribe to The Hustle, a daily email that will give you the business news you need to start your day.